0: the poetry of truth reflections on the gospel of luke narrated by gil bailey and produced by the cornerstone forum part 8 so it's very important that it says he came to himself and i want to come back to this when we talk about what this means in terms in terms of personhood but to say he came to himself implies that he had not come to himself heretofore. Now most people when they say give me my share, I'm going to go out and do it on my own. They think they're already they've already come to themselves. They think that's why they're doing this. is because they finally come to themselves and they're tired of being part of this little group, you know, and I'm going to go do it on my own. I'm coming into my own, you know. That's western version of coming to yourself. Let's go do it on our own. He comes to himself when he realizes that's going nowhere. He comes to himself and he realizes that he's miserable. There's a marvelous passage in Dante's, uh, I think it's in the Purgatorio, I can't remember, maybe the Inferno, but Dante's going along and he's, Virgil has been instructing him all the while and Dante realizes that, that, that life is this you know, immense responsibility and one has to do these things and overcome these obstacles and so on. And there comes this moment when, the, when somebody says, well, you know, it has to do with being happy. And Dante says, oh my gosh, I never thought of that. Because I'd gotten so caught up in all of this, the grandeur of this responsibility, I didn't realize that happiness can be a barometer. And so you stop and say, wait a minute, am I happy? And the answer can be a real shock because maybe you haven't asked yourself that for a while. And there's a little bit of that here where he's, he, he's able to recognize the misery. And I was thinking about this and I was thinking that Hell is probably, it's it's possible, you know, to speak metaphorically or metaphysically. It's possible that if you went into hell with a microphone interviewing people, they would tell you they're happy. That hell might be precisely the place where people who are unhappy have not been able to recognize that fact. And that's why they're there. I've always said people only people in hell are people who want to be there. And by the help of this passage, I realized the reason they want to be there is because they don't recognize the fact that they're Unhappy It's possible to be unhappy for years and years and not know it We can we can be I mean you think of these things where you know the idea? Well, let's party let's go out and have some fun da 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 and it has all of the sort of You know the superficial notion of happiness glibness uh, cheerfulness and so on But underneath its misery and this fellow what makes it what makes his turnaround possible is that he comes to himself and is actually able to recognize the fact that he's miserable. And so he begins to make his way back. And this is this verse 20 of chapter 15. If we were really in touch with the gospel, we would weep every time we read it. He goes back to his father's home. He set off return to his father. While he was still far off, His father saw him, was filled with compassion and ran to him and put his arms around him and kissed him. Now, we don't realize what a shock this would be to uh, the Oriental mind because in the first century, in, in, in the Oriental culture, the patriarch was like a monarch he was enthroned at all times he was he maintained his dignity everyone it was a patriarchal system with a very steep uh, incline you know and everyone was beneath him everyone and everyone did his bidding and he he moved like the queen or the king you know he had that kind of regality and those who offended him in the in the old jewish law a disobedient son could be killed you see So you have that kind of structure where you would expect, well, the father saw him from far off, and he sat there akimbo waiting to see what the guy was going to say when he got there. Interesting thing is we never know. The father doesn't know. The son might be coming back to hit him up for a little spare cash. There's no, the father doesn't know. The father doesn't wait to find out. This is absolutely unbelievable. Unbelievable. Even today, of course, and we live in a world that's been under the influence of this ethos for a long time. But can you imagine what it was like for the first century? It was absolutely unheard of. Here's this father who's supposed to be this, this symbol of decorum. He's running off, you know, his turban's coming off, his sandals coming off. He looks like a total idiot in order to embrace this son who essentially spat in his face. That's God. That's God. That's the God Jesus is trying to talk about. Holy smoke. <laughs> Isn't that something? So now the son, he's totally, no doubt, he's completely astounded by the reaction of the father. But he's prepared his speech. He's been rehearsing this speech. It's kind of like you know, Jacob getting ready to meet Esau, you know. He's been rehearsing this speech, and so there's the father. And so even though, as soon as he gets out of that embrace he can't figure out, he starts to give the speech, and it's just like what he had rehearsed. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. <laughs> we have to read this in a kind of stiff way as though he's been rehearsing this speech. But the father doesn't let him get to the last part of it. The last part of it is "I, I just hire me as a hired hand, and the father cuts him off. And says to his slave, Quickly, bring a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his fingers. Put sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. He is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, the robe and the ring and the sandals represents something beyond sonship in the ordinary sense. It represents something for which there is no niche in first century family structure. In other words, the father is treating the son in an immensely generous and acknowledging way he is not recognizing him the son was about to say i'm not worthy to be a son i'll just be your hired hand the father's response is it's not you're not just a son any longer you're something else slightly above that you're you have in other words it's just like the lost coin and the lost sheep Uh, the woman finds the lost coin she throws a party that costs more than the lost coin was worth there's that kind of mystery to it all Now we get the second version of the story, which we don't often recognize as the second version of the story. The elder son was in the field. He approached. He heard the music and the dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come. Your father has killed a fatted calf because he has got back safe and sound. Then the the elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So you have another version of this. Now this son is saying, I'm going to be out. This is just another version of this. It's a way of saying, "I'll be out here. I'm not going in. I'm not going to be part of it." And again, we would expect first-century Oriental uh, cultural situation. We would expect the patriarch to say to say to his servant, "Well, tell him to get out of my life." That'd be one option. One option two would be drag him in here, kicking or screaming. Here it says. His father came out and began to plead with him. His father left the party. Oh, got another one outside, huh? Oh, excuse me. (laughs) Let me go out here, please. I'm having a party. It's a huge banquet. It's the best food you've ever eaten. It's the best wine you've ever had. It's a lot of fun. Would you please come inside? You know, he didn't stand at the door and say, well, screw you, buddy. We're having fun in here. You don't like it. He goes out. It's his. It's a little tiny version of running. You see, embracing. It's the same story all over again, except the second the elder son is experiencing that in reaction to what happened to his younger brother, and he's a hard case. You see, he hasn't had the experience of feeding slop to swine and envying them for what they're eating. So it's a little harder to get through to him. So he says to his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a younger goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours, see the elder elder son calls him this son of yours, the father says, this brother of yours was dead and has come to life, was lost and has been found now there's a redefinition of the bonds of the filial bonds huh unbelievable the new glue is forgiveness and it's and and it's a story of, i mean it's a story about god but it's a story about how we all ought to be because we're made in the image and likeness and we're never told what the, the it ends there see we never know what the elder the elder son did what his response was but the elder son is the Pharisee. See, so he's the he's the Pharisee in all of us, who says, "Look, I've been doing it the right way all these years," and all of a sudden, the gospel's filled with this. You know the the parable of somebody who hires people. Well, I hire people at at uh, noon, and then somebody at two, and somebody at four, and somebody at the very last hour, and I pay them all the same. And the guys who got hired at first said, "Wait a minute! How come you pay us all the same?" He said, I, you t- "I told you what it was. You you went for it, and uh, so I'm generous. What the heck?" What's it to you? The gospel is filled with that, and here it is again. And the and the elder son says, wait a minute, I've been doing all of this, and look, it ought to be, but you see, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. I think he's gonna get it because of the, just the spirit of the story. But for a while, he doesn't get it. Well, this is what I wanna get to. The, the most profound aspect of this parable comes out, and, and I'm just going to report to you on some, so, a, a, an understanding of this parable that I got from a French uh, theologian, uh, Jean-Luc Marion, which is really, I think, quite amazing. Uh, Marion is a, is, a, is a student of Heidegger, which uh, immediately raises some problems, but he's, he parts company with Heidegger, but he, does, he, he really has some, something very important to say. So I want to turn to his understanding because then it takes us to an even deeper level. This We can understand this parable in terms of history, cultural history. We can understand it in terms of family, in terms of what it means about God, what it means about human relationships. And all of those come into play in this next interpretation as well. But this one really takes it, I think, down uh, to its essence. And I would begin by hearkening back to the, path, to the verse where the man says he came to himself. He came to himself. When do we come to ourselves? In Western history, we keep thinking we're coming to ourselves in a way. What does that mean to come to oneself? Well, as you know, we talked about it in earlier sessions. One of the New Testament's words for person there are two Greek words for person. There's the, uh, the usual one, which is persona, which means a mask. And then there's hupostasis, which is used sometimes to mean person. It means, hupos, hupo means under and stasis means to stand. It's that which is under on which we stand. It's a solid foundation. But it's used in biblical uh, references to, to speak of the personhood of Christ, the three persons of the Trinity, the hypostatic union between the three persons of the Trinity, the hypostatic or hypostatic nature of Christ, namely being both divine and human, and so on and so forth. So let that be a little overture to... An approach to the to the prodigal son's story as uh, Jean-Luc Marion reads it. It says, the younger son said to the father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. The Greek word here is ousia, which means substance. I want the substance. And then he squandered it and so on. Here's what Marion says. The son requests that he no longer have to request, or rather that he no longer have to receive the usia, the substance. He asks that he no longer have to receive the usia as a gift. He asks to possess it, to dispose of it, to enjoy it without passing through the gift and reception of gift. He wants to have it instead of being given it. He wants to break away from the giving and receiving universe and be out on his own. He wants it to be his to dispose of. And what are we talking about? what's that mean? His life. You see, at a deeper level, the substance of Usia, is life. He wants it to be his to dispose of as he sees fit, you see. And then Marion says, the son wants to owe nothing to his father. And above all, not to owe him a gift. He asked to have a father no longer. The usia without the father or the gift. He wants to be an individual, you could say in Western. This is where this really meshes with this idea that we in the West have been the prodigal child uh, in recent centuries. Then Marion says, Henceforth, orphan of the paternal gift, possessed by the son insomuch as dispossessed of the paternal gift, it no longer holds in him. Possessed by the son in so much as dispossessed of the paternal gift, it no longer holds in him. Marion is trying to move beyond conventional ontology, the entitative ontology, the ontology of the entity, to something else. And, but it, I think it fits in with that thing that we've talked about so often of uh, Henri de Lubach talking about ontological density, the vanishing of ontological density in the modern world. Ontological density is vanishing for the same reason that the wealth that the younger son walked away with vanished And that's because it got cut off from the giving and receiving That was its source And we have to think about this at the level of being itself although being is a word that That uh, Marion would not use the name of the book that I'm taking this from is God without being He's trying to get beyond that conventional ontology Nevertheless, there's something here about the, the vanishing of ontological density. There's a passage in Jeremiah where Jeremiah talks about uh, the living waters, and we have traded the living waters for an empty cistern that holds no water. You see? In other words, it fall it's just like sand through our fingers. When we try to take it, you see, here's this process of giving and receiving. It's the process of Christianity calls grace. Giving and receiving. My life is given to me. I give it back. It's given back. I give it back. It's given back. I give it back. That's the, that is the substance. That's the hoopostatic truth about life. And I think, oh, this is quite nice. I think I'll take it all, out on my own and do with it what I want. And it gets thin and thin and thin and starts to wobble and come apart and look funny and feel inauthentic and goes nowhere, and the ontological density vanishes. It's in that process of receiving and giving back that uh, it has its substance. So Marion says, famine symbolically marks this dispersed dissipation where meaning even more than food has disappeared. Isn't that something? I mean to see the and then he says in fact it is not the abandoned usia or substance alone that is lost the son had gambled his filiation for it so now he has dissipated the usia and no longer has his filiation you see he's unaffiliated He's on his own. This is is the story of Western individualism. He's unaffiliated. He has nothing to stand on. Hupostasis. And this has an epistemological implication because if if I have nothing to stand on, I have no way of understanding. And that's not just a play on words. So, Marion says, the father does not see the usia, the substance, the same way the sons see it. Or rather, the father does not see the usia at all. And indeed, the term appears only in the speech of the sons. The sons both talk about this usia, this substance, because that's what their eyes are fixed on, you see. They're watching, it's like, you know, what, what are the pieces on the board? You know, what are you looking at here? They're watching the uh, Usia move around. And that's not what the father is watching. So, Marion says the father does not allow his gaze to freeze on a transitory term. An idol, if it did not fade entirely in the exchange of which it constitutes only the medium, the Usia is valuable to the father only as the currency in an exchange of which it can mark, at the very best, but a moment, an exchange whose solemnity of infinite generosity most often is masked by the title of property. This is a little, and this is a translation from French, and it's a little convoluted, but I think you can pick up on the significance of this, of this work. And then Marion says, under the idolatrously charged gaze of the suns, Currency obfuscates exchange. To the profoundly iconic gaze of the father, usia, substance, never stops the aim of the exchange or the circulation of the gift. Well, to me, there's something there that is tremendously powerful, and it goes to the mystery of personhood in Christian life, which is never autonomous and individual in the simple-minded way in which we think of those things. And when we walk away from, in the West, we we walk away and we think because this process of giving and receiving of substance is very powerful. What comes out of it is a tremendous ontological density, tremendous ontological vitality. And so we think, hey, look at this, look at me, hey, hey. And we say, oh, I think I'll take this and go off. You see what I mean? And we walk away from it, and the source of that ontological vitality is lost. And it begins to drain away and drain away and drain away. And then we invent psychology in order to, Try to help us understand what's happening uh, And so on But I think uh, Marion has seen exactly The problem from a Christian point of view The younger son Takes the substance That is the product Of the Giving and receiving reciprocity Of life God gives me life, I give it back. God gives me life, I give it back. That, the product of that economy is a tremendous ontological substance. The younger son walks away with it and it begins to fall through his fingers. And he begins to have the experience of insubstantiality. You want to know what the modern experience is? Insubstantiality, psychological insubstantiality. And we all do these weird, crazy, ridiculous things in order to try to generate some semblance of substance in a world where increasingly the experience is of insubstantiality. I'm convinced that Marion's understanding of selfhood is absolutely right from a Christian point of view that and, and so this coming to himself is the kind of coming to oneself that happens at the moment of metanoia when I realize, you know when, when I hear the cock crow or something like that, and it brings about a reorientation and a returning to, to that hypostatic mystery. I think what Marion is trying to bring out here is a kind of radical Christian non dualism, which which shatters our notion of 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 selfhood, the Western notion of selfhood altogether, and that's really an incredible liberation when you realize that this business of of prayer, to use one term for it, is serious business that we. This has to do with what it means to be alive. That there's that in order to that it's a tremendous privilege to be a person. It's hypostatic. And it doesn't happen just because you happen to have a body that's not connected to somebody else. If there is such a thing as Christian mondualism, it would it wouldn't be it would be it would have a specificity, a Christian specificity to it which would the essence of which would be this this experience of he came to himself that there's a moment of conversion repentance which happens when I realize I cannot not only cannot do it on my own in some sort of silly way, but I cannot be on my own. Well, here's the thing. Last week we did the uh, prodigal son story, which is one of the high points in the gospel. And I've been anticipating getting to this section of Luke that we're supposed to deal with today, which is chapter 16 through 19. I've been anticipating it for a while because I've I've been a little wary of it. And particularly coming off of the discussion we had last week of Prodigal Son, I found these chapters too confusing. Now, that's not to say that, I mean, I think about them and I read the exegetes and uh, uh, I could have said something about them that might have had a slight ring of authenticity to it but i didn't feel it frankly and now there are two things you typically do when you when this happens one is the exegetical stance which is to begin to ruminate about how this such a uh, such an incoherent uh, cluster of text could have been assembled in the first place particularly by somebody as brilliant as luke which is a way of condescending to the text, to the gospel. Although I must say, and I don't want to do that. However, I must say, I, I'm not altogether unsympathetic. There's One has a feeling that perhaps Luke got to the end of his gospel and looked on the editing room floor and saw all these things that had been left out that were part of a revered tradition. And he felt as... We often do when we decide not to throw something away. After all, he thought. Well, there must be a place for this, so I'll just stick it in, and I'll stick it in right here between the prodigal son story and Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, and um, pretty much threw it all in there, and uh, with very slight attempt to uh, make it fit either what went before and what came after, or uh, fit with the various parts of the thing itself. uh, Here's the thing. I have had this experience many times dealing with biblical texts, particularly the New Testament, and that is the very thing that you think is not meaningful turns out 10 years later to be the most meaningful. I'm perfectly sure this will be the case in in the case of chapters 16 through 19, but right now, one can't rush the process. I can't. At the moment, now, I could say some things, and even earlier this week, I tried to, because I thought I have a responsibility for dealing with these texts, whether I like it or not. And I tried to say some things, and it went off reasonably well, but when it was over with, I thought I shouldn't have done that, because I didn't say something true, really true to the text, as far as I'm concerned, and I didn't live up to it. So I'm just going to sidestep it. I'm just going to sidestep it. When it comes to chapters 16 to 19, you're on your own. Much of the material in this part of the gospel is brooding over the second coming. When will the kingdom come? What will it look like? Uh, what is the son of the coming of the son of man? The days of the son of man and so on. These questions uh, come up again and again in, in these uh, chapters. And there's always a sense that whatever this thing is that's looming on the horizon, the eschatological horizon, it's already at work, it's liberating, and it's terribly dangerous, and it involves judgment. That is to say it's a crisis. And how we respond to the crisis will be decisive. So that's the atmosphere of these uh, of these chapters, and I want to, I hope, at least, to stay within the atmosphere of that, if not uh, dealing specifically with the text. So what I want to do is share some things that don't have anything to do with the gospel. Well, they do have, the, the point I want to make is that they do have to do with the gospel. But I want to introduce them this way. I want to start with what the gospel tells us which is that we will come to know the truth, and the truth will set us free. That our freedom is connected to the truth. And that's the only way in which it will be true freedom. And unless freedom is connected to the truth, it's not true freedom. And truth in Greek is aletheia, which means to stop forgetting. lethe is the root word which means forgetfulness, and and a is the negative prefix. Aletheia means to stop forgetting. The truth is when we stop forgetting. And that's why Christian conversion always involves a retrospective glance at one's sinfulness. Uh, We stop forgetting. So that's... I want to keep that in mind. Now, in chapter 11 of Luke, Jesus had said, this generation will be accountable and I, I argue as you remember that uh, this generation we should see this as a reference not to the people alive at the time of Jesus, but at as a reference to those who participate in this kind of generative activity, this kind of cultural generativity. This generation and to that extent it's anyone of us in history uh, who benefits from the whole sacrificial apparatus which the cross exposes and deconstructs. This generation, Jesus says in chapter 11 of Luke, will be accountable for the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be, it, the blood of all these prophets, will be charged against this generation. So. Jesus here sees prophets in a much wider context than we usually think because he names Abel as one of the prophets. Abel was not a Jew and he was certainly not a prophet except for the fact that he was killed. He was a victim. Victims become prophets in retrospect because when we see them, when we really see them, when we see Abel the way the Bible sees Abel, then we're beginning to catch a glimpse of the truth. If we see Abel the way the Roman myth sees Remus, you see Romulus kills Remus, and we hardly hear any more about Remus. The, the Roman myth doesn't tell us that Remus was innocent and that Romulus was a murderer, but the Bible tells us that Abel was innocent and Cain was a murderer. So the Bible sees Abel in 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 new light it doesn't believe the justifying myth and therefore Abel is a prophet that is to say a revealer of the truth because we see the victim so Jesus understands prophet here in a much larger way than the one we usually think of and when Jesus is approaching Jerusalem his his uh, companions are looking on this magnificent city. They're, they're rural people for the most part, country people. They come upon this incredible city, great temple on a hill and so on. And they're pretty awed by it. And Jesus says, this is the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He sees the city in a different way. He recognizes the source of its sacrality. And that's why he's going there. Now, is that tr- can I say that of a historical Jesus? I have no idea. But in the gospel, that's why Jesus is going there. Precisely, that's the, why that's the central location for him. Not so much because the temple is there. The temple is just the art- architectural manifestation of the sacrality. But underneath all that, is precisely this, the victim. And so there's another version in chapter 17 of the same kind of x-ray vision of Jesus uh, because his contemporaries are asking him about when the kingdom is going to come, where it's going to come, when it's going to come. uh, And he realizes that they, they can't possibly understand that. He says to them it's happening already and you can't see it and they say to him where will it happen in other words the world's a big place where is it going to break in where's the kingdom going to break in just give us a clue see this is like some uh, detective story just give us a clue was it the butler in the kitchen with the you see something like that and jesus says to them Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What are we to make of that? Well, a lot has been made of it. But it's a pretty amazing clue, wouldn't you say? He's seeing culture. Where where in the world, which is almost always, when we say world, we mean the cosmos, the ordered world, the cultural world, the human world where will the kingdom break in where the corpse is there the vultures will gather it's totally enigmatic at one level and at another level it's filled with interesting innuendo so the corpse is that's so we should be looking around for that and the vultures. If you, and in order to find the corpse, look for the vultures. They'll be gathered around. Well, in Matthew's gospel at the crucifixion, some very important things happen. And here's how Matthew has it. At that, that is at the moment of Jesus' death, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth quaked. The rocks were split. And the tombs were opened and the bodies of many holy men rose from the dead. Suddenly at the crucifixion, what we've learned is that these tombs can no longer keep the dead in them. The the dead are coming up out of those tombs, which which is, I think, an incredibly apt metaphor for the truth breaking out of the myth. The truth of the victim, breaking out of the myth. These holy men are precisely the martyrs, are the are the prophets. Clearly, there's a there's a connection between the this this notion of prophets that I referred to just a few minutes ago, and this reference here to holy men. And suddenly their tombs are opened and they're coming out. And this is the beginning of the kingdom. This is the breaking in of the kingdom. The kingdom breaks in. How do you... Now, the kingdom is not about dead bodies and corpses and violence. The kingdom is about the opposite of that. The kingdom is about the God of infinite love and mercy. But the kingdom breaks in on a sinful world at the place of the sin. That's why the cross is what it is. So if we want to look for where the kingdom is breaking into the world, we look for where the vultures are surrounding the corpse. That's not because we have a lurid uh, interest in these kind of things, but because the good news always looks like bad news at first. You see, the good news is always breaks in destroying the myth which was designed to keep us from the bad news. So when the myth breaks open, the bad news the myth was designed to, to 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 ward off is right there. But on the other side of that is the good news of our liberation. We're no longer enslaved by that, by that whole process of fleeing from the truth. So the kingdom breaks in, and I think this... In many ways, is is part of the burden of these chapters that I'm that I'm uh, skirting here today. In many ways, we can recognize the breaking in of the kingdom by going to that locale which Jesus pointed out, or the corpse where the vultures are gathered, and watch what happens, or looking at the tombs of the holy ones. Holy ones here simply means those who were the victims of righteous violence. That's what prophet really means in the New Testament, and we suddenly see. The tombs are shattered and the truth is coming out. And I would say that's a measure of the breaking in of the kingdom. So if people today say the world's in a hell of a fix and and, uh, there's very little sign that the kingdom is breaking in, I mean, here and there you see these wonderful things, but by and large you see a whole lot of bad stuff. If we had eyes eyes to see, we would see that the kingdom is breaking in. We simply are fleeing from it. The truth of it is breaking in on us and, and precipitating a tremendous crisis which we're not meeting. And as a result, there's a tremendous uh, chaos and bloodshed in our world. I, I, I think that's it. So the kingdom or the reign of God breaks in when the bodies of the victims can no longer be hidden by the myths, shrines, and sacrificial apparatus of the sacred system. The tombs are open. Now, I am going to talk about these chapters a little bit. I just realized Because in chapter 17, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, when is the kingdom of God coming? And he said, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, look, here it is, there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you or in you. Now, this is a phrase that biblical scholars uh, have been mulling over for a long, long time. Does it mean in you in some spiritualistic sense? Or does it mean among you in some sense of uh, e- ecclesiology, some sense of community? Is Christ among us, in us? You see, this goes the whole no- notion of the cosmic Christ and so on and so on. The question here is when is the kingdom coming? So I think, and there are some uh, exegetes who who uh, would put it this way as well. So I'm not out on a limb all by myself. I think the way to think about this, if it's responsive to the question when, then this Greek phrase means it's already underway. It's already taking place. And Jesus is talking about his own mission. I'm, the, the kingdom has begun. And now it's going to unfold. And the, the, Main image of that unfolding in the Gospels is John, uh, the uh, author of the Gospel of John's notion of the Paraclete. So it's already at work. The kingdom is already at work. And then Jesus uh, says to his disciples, "The days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it." Now he's predicting here an eclipse. He's predicting a a, a long term waiting, but also an an eclipse where one longs for it and can't see it. And does that mean it's not going to be working? Because he's just said it's working now. And I think, no, it's going to be working. They just won't, we, they, won't be able to see it working. It's going to work whether you see it working or not. And people will say to you, Jesus says, look there, look here, but do not go. Do not set off in pursuit. For the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must endure much suffering and be rejected by this generation. Now, this is the suffering they could not see. Remember that? They could not see this suffering. In chapter 18, we have this. He took the 12 aside and he said, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So all this stuff about the Son of Man coming and so on, when is the Son of Man coming? He's talking about the Son of Man. He's going to come as soon as he gets to Jerusalem. He's already there. It's working already. In any event, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. After they have flogged him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. And then this very important verse. But they understood nothing of all these things. In fact, what he said was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. And there's another example of that epistemological block. They simply couldn't understand what he was saying. Now, they cannot see the suffering of the Son of Man, the suffering of the Messiah. And up here he says, the day is coming when you will long to see the Son of Man and will not be able to see him or to see the day of the Son of Man. And I think the inability to see that suffering, the inability to see the victim, undergoing the victimization, is exactly the same thing as the inability to see the breaking into the kingdom. So the ability to recognize the victim is a measure of the degree to which the kingdom is breaking in on the world, and we're experiencing the truth, which is to say we're we're, we're ceasing to forget. The victim, in a way, is the, is the Rorschach test, which will determine how alert and awake we are. Now, <clears throat> what I want to do now is read to you some newspaper articles, and... Uh, something about an exhibit I saw at the Smithsonian Institute when I was back in Washington recently. And think about it in terms of the kingdom, the kingdom breaking in. The gospel, it's a pretty astounding. The the gospel is not romantic at all. It's not idealistic at all. And so when it talks about the kingdom coming in, there, there are very strong, ominous notes sounded. The breaking into the kingdom can be a very serious grave thing, and it can be accompanied by a lot of chaos and violence. And that's because the breaking into the kingdom involves the destruction of the old sacred system, the purpose of which was to avoid all that violence. And the gospel's way of avoiding all that violence is to undergo a conversion and to change the way in which we in which our lives of desire uh, are experienced so that if if the gospel comes in and destroys the old sacred system for preventing violence and we haven't undergone a sufficient conversion so that we can avoid violence in a christian way then the world gets very bloody so there's that so yesterday in the New York Times there was this story uh, uh, from Rwanda and I'm just going to read you a few sections and just let it wash over you and we'll think about it uh, it begins this way 15 months ago oh by the way th- the story was accompanied by a uh, I should have brought it up here the story was accompanied by a photograph of Bishop Desmond Tutu and some other people looking at this huge flat surface uh, on which were skulls, all stacked up, 500 of them, uh, at this church in rural Rwanda where, where a massacre had, had occurred. So uh, the story begins this way, 15 months ago, these 500 skulls had faces and were part of the pile of freshly killed bodies on the church floor. A year later, with most of the flesh and hair gone, they were detached and laid in rows on the ground. The holes explain everything. Round dents from hammers, thin slits from pangas, a spear point snapped off in an eye socket, Two months ago, a long wooden table was built and the skulls were rearranged on it in rows neat as eggs. More unnerving is a second table, a tumble of blood-soaked laundry with shins and ribs sticking out. Recently, a tin roof was added and a fence put around the site. Slowly, carefully, and with amateurishness that is almost touching, Rwanda is building a Holocaust Museum at its own Auschwitz. Think about that. By the way, the people who were doing this never even heard of the Holocaust Museum. This is another touching thing that comes out in the story because one of the people said, somebody told me that in Jerusalem there's a Holocaust Museum If you ever go there, he said, would you tell those people to write us and help us figure out how to make ours? In other words, these are not people who have been to all these and think, well, let's have one of our own. This is coming up out of their own experience, you see? And this is the tombs of the Holy Ones opening up at the crucifixion. This is the breaking in of the kingdom. It's a very gory thing. Later on in the article, it says, the Ministry of Labor and Social Affairs has a three-phase plan. At sites of fewer than 1,000 victims, many of them mounds of dirt thrown over the bodies by neighbors, it is having mass graves dug, lining them with plastic and reburying the dead with a proper religious ceremony. At sites of 1,000 to 10,000 victims, it does the same but erects a sort of wooden palisade as a tomb. At the sites of more than 10,000 victims, the government wants some sort of shrine so that when the graves disappear under banana groves, no African Holocaust skeptic can say it never happened. One reads these things, you know, and you begin to think that the, the cliches we've been uttering for forever and ever about the inflated numbers of, uh, of dead in the Old Testament may not have been inflated after all. 24,000 died, maybe they did, you know. Now, it's always possible because the forces of myth and the forces of gospel are always in a struggle with one another. And we're all nostalgic for the old sacred system. One never knows if this is going to become another version of what Jesus warned the Pharisees about when he said, you build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed. So you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your ancestors for they killed them and you build their tombs. Uh, this is It's so marvelous that the gospel analyzes this. It's simply building the tomb, saying, well, we're innocent of that. These terrible people did it. We're going to make a shrine so everybody knows how bad they were. Christians did this a little bit with anti-Semitism, you know. It's like, oh, now this the cross really means that those Jews were terrible. As long as it's that, it's exactly the opposite of the revelation of the cross. It's moving aside, exonerating, pointing the finger. So there's... so. This is what, this this is this is real life. You see, we're right in the midst of it. Only time will tell, and no doubt it will it will be both of those things. Uh, but the Reverend Jan Linsen, the regional supervisor of the missionaries of Africa, the Belgian quote white fathers who have been in Rwanda since 1900, said, "I have the impression that the government's message is not very clear. To some, it seems they are using this." To point the finger at other people, to say, look what you did. Now one of the things we have to notice here is, I've tried to emphasize that the, that the, the cross in, involves an epistemological breakthrough. So that Jesus says, he says to his disciples, I have to suffer and die, and they can't get it, they can't see it, and therefore they can't see the coming of the Son of Man. And, and so it ha- they have to wait for the cross, and the cross breaks that epistemological bondage and allows them to begin to see those things. And so the same thing here. There's a breaking out of that of that uh, mythic shell, but there's always the tendency to fall back into it again and to recover some little aspect of the, the old sacred by... Uh, by reinforcing its 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 uh, polarities and sacred and profane distinctions and so on. Going on with the article just a little bit more, a government official uh, named uh, Stratton agreed, quote, that some people were suspicious that the government would use the sites to blame the Hutu. He, uh, Stratton says, quote, if you see the bones of persons you've killed, however... You wonder in yourself if what you've done is good or bad. It's an occasion to regret, to say, I have done wrong. When you do that, it's the first step to saying, I won't do it again, end quote. Well, that may not be the you know, deepest and most profound remark, but what it is, is a Version of hearing the cock crow. He's talking about hearing the cock crow. The tombs are opened and one sees the victim, one feels the moral pang, and that's the kingdom breaking in. And there's always a tendency to go reinter the victim in a new kind of shrine and blame it on the liberals, or blame it on the conservatives, or blame it on the, this, you know what I'm saying? Okay, so that was one that was just yesterday. Just fell into my lap from the New York Times, as these things do. The next story I want to share with you about the breaking into the kingdom is in a way more interesting to me, and there's a There's a connection here to the Holocaust Museum, as well, in a way, geographically, because this is from an exhibit that was in the Smithsonian, which is about four blocks away from the Holocaust Museum. And when I was back in Washington a couple months ago, I had a free afternoon. I went to the Smithsonian, and there was this exhibit. I didn't go looking for trouble. I just went there. It was the exhibit that was there, the Tombs of Zippon. The last time I was there, about a year earlier, I went and there was this exhibit on the potlatch uh, ritual in the Northwest Indian cultures. And it was the same thing. I, I couldn't believe my eyes. But I, I don't want to talk about that today. This was even, this one, the Tombs of Stepan exhibit, was even more graphic. And you'll see, as I go through it a little bit, I'm just going to talk about it for a minute or two, you'll see the connection, I think, with the Holocaust Museum. In any event, here's the story. In northern Peru, there was a culture, the Moki culture, which thrived more or less from the 1st to the 8th century AD. It replaced a thriving culture before it arrived. It absorbed many of the things of the previous culture, but it it finally extinguished it, and and uh, its own culture survived for these several centuries. This culture had monumental architecture. As a matter of fact, the tomb that was discovered was a was in a great pyramidal structure, which was almost certainly the sacrificial shrine, very much like uh, Aztec. Uh, Toltec kind of shrines. And what I'm going to do is read to you the commemorative book from, uh, and it's, you, you can look at it, it has absolutely fabulous color uh, reproductions of everything. It's part of the iconography. When they came upon these tombs, the tombs had been looted, but there were Graves beneath the tombs that have been looted that were still pristine, and the deeper ones were even the more important of the graves. And f- these things were filled with uh, I- pots and other things that had detailed iconography uh, on them, so that we now have not only a uh, the archaeological uh, data to uh, estimate what the ritual was like but we actually have the visual depiction of the ritual what i'm going to do to what i'm going to do is read from a section of this of this book that tells about this culture first of all it says that this culture was one of the most remarkable civilizations of the ancient world so we're not talking about something marginal we're talking about a thriving culture we're not talking about something that today we would think of as some weird cult off in the off in the jungle, someplace doing some strange thing. We're talking about a thriving civilization in these tombs, they found these the the uh warrior priest and a number of other priests of the cult buried buried in the shrine, you see. Uh, and with all the accoutrements and so on, clearly their uh, members of their household were sacrificed at their own death. Very typical sort of thing, uh, and so that we they were able to make some determinations about this culture. The culture seems to have existed in order to engage in warfare with rival culture. Turns out that's not quite true nevertheless warfare was very important warfare was a ritual when they went to war they didn't just go try to beat the other guys however they could it was stylized in the way that war was is always stylized in sacred uh, culture sacralized culture it's part of the sacrificial ritual and so they would go to war the purpose was to each individual warrior would find a warrior from the other culture and war with them and defeat them. And the defeat, we have pictures now of what this was all like. And I'll read to, to you from this, from this uh, book. It says, uh, there was one, a one-on-one combat. The purpose was to, uh, to vanquish one's opponent. Normally, quoting, normally only the vanquishing of the enemy is shown. This usually involved hitting the opponent on the head or upper body with a war club. Defeat is indicated by the enemy receiving such a blow, bleeding profusely from his nose, losing his headdress and possibly other parts of his attire, or by the victor grasping his hair, removing his nose ornament, or slapping his face. So a a, a gesture of conquering. Once the enemy is defeated, a rope is put around his neck, he is he he's made to march in front of his conqueror and there are parades and this is like the greek pharmakos the the parading of the pharmakos victim around the greek uh, polis you know so there are parades in which this wretched one that has been conquered is paraded around and then taken to be arraigned before the high priest following some now reading following the arraignment there was a ceremony in which the prisoners were sacrificed by having their throats cut and the blood consumed by priests and attendants. The prisoners' bodies were then dismembered, their heads, hands, and feet removed and tied individually with ropes to create trophies. Now here what we have to ask ourselves is, mostly what we, I mean, up until recently, what we got here for the last couple of hundred years was a lot of romanticism about non-Western cultures and how noble and wonderful and whatever they were. Western culture was bloody, we knew. Uh, we knew that we were terrible, or we recently we've been willing to admit that. But these other cultures, we didn't see that. Now we see it, and now we can't go the other direction. We can't say, oh, this is it. These uncivilized creatures hardly deserve to be called human. That We don't have any relationship to them. They're terrible. Look how bloody they were, and so on. What we have to realize is these are our brothers and sisters. They fell into this. We have brothers and sisters that are falling into it right now in Bosnia, right now doing the same thing practically. They did it in Rwanda. It could happen here, you see. Sarajevo was just as civilized as Chicago two years ago. There are places in Chicago where one wonders, you see what I'm saying? We, we can't just write this off and say, well, this was a long time ago and it was those savages. There's something here that's very powerful. And to, to write it off is to seal the tomb again and to ignore and blunt, or as though we could, the arrival of the kingdom. Because the arrival of the, ki- the kingdom arrives with this kind of announcement. the The lid is off and you see it for what it is. And you realize these people didn't do this because they were they were psychopaths. they did it because it worked. The sacrificial system worked, it kept order it kept their civilizations from falling apart, and we're not going to do it and I mean, we're trying our best not to do it anymore, but it's going to take more than you know a good stiff dose of. Rationalism to uh, get ourselves out of this particular jam. In any event, it, the the next sentence in this text from the Smithsonian is the one of the important ones, and it is this quote: "It is clear that the primary objective of warfare in the Moki culture was the capture of prisoners for sacrifice." Now this is quite important. One of the contested assertions of Girard is that war exists to service the sacrificial system and not the other way around. That ultimately, anthropologically, you know, later on in history these things get commingled in some way uh, and they are mutually dependent, codependent, you see. Uh, But uh, in the beginning, war is an afterthought. War is what you do to to harvest new sacrificial victims by capturing prisoners. And there it is in the Smithsonian. That's pretty impressive uh, authority, I suspect. So now here's where we get the question, and this is what I want to, all the way through today, I want to think about this question of, are we really opening our eyes? are we really seeing the breaking into the kingdom? Are we resealing the tomb? Uh, you see and so it's a little always a little bit of both. all of us have to realize that we have we don't really quite want to let it all out and there's that's not irrational, you know So here's, here's what it says right after that statement. there are many representations of the sacrifice ceremony in moki art. And these imply that it was an important aspect of Moki religion. That's an understatement. It was obviously the central thing in Moki religion. As a matter of fact, it was the central thing in Moki culture. Uh, But then it goes on. In this respect, it, the sacrifice ceremony in Moki culture, it is somewhat analogous to the many depictions of the nativity in Christian art. Although the symbolic elements that characterize the nativity are standard, the infant, Mary, wise men, manger, star, etc., there is a considerable variation in the way they are combined. Some representations show only the star or the infant, while others combine multiple elements in various ways. The complete inventory of elements, however, is rarely found in a single representation. The same is true of the way Moki artists depict the sacrifice ceremony. The symbolic elements that characterize it are standard, but there's considerable variation in the way they are uh, combined. Some representations show only a single element. Others involve combinations of multiple elements. Well, that's interesting, but it's not nearly as interesting as it would have been if the comparison had been to the crucifixion rather than the nativity, because the nativity is not the central uh, iconographic image of Christian. Uh, religion. The point is that the comparison is made with the nativity. It's perfectly understandable why that would be, but if one was really thinking anthropologically, then the comparison should be with the crucifixion, and then you get something that's that's going to going to bear real fruit, or it can bear real fruit. The first thing we have to do is overcome the first lulling effect of those. Uh, of having the sacrificial ritual and the crucifixion put side by side. The lulling effect is, is what we got with uh, Joseph Campbell, which is, ah, they're the same. They're the same event. Well, structurally, they're the same event, except one of them sees it from the point of view of the victim, and the other sees it from the point of view of the victimizing community. It's a huge difference. So then, let me go on. I'm going to describe the ritual, the ritual sacrifice itself. This is gory stuff, but this is just uh, the the uh, victim coming up out of the sealed tomb. There's the warrior priest, who's the central uh, officiator at and, and the central figure in the whole culture, uh, and he is. The large figure to the left who holds a tall goblet. Rays emanate from his head and shoulders uh, and so on. The figure to the right of the warrior priest is the bird priest. To the right of the bird priest is the priestess who always wears a dress like garment and a headdress with prominent plumes. The fourth figure is is an attendant priest uh, with usually a mask on of some kind. And then it says, in the lower register, this is the bottom half of the thing you're looking at there, in the lower register of this scene, two nude figures are having their throats cut. Their hands are tied behind their backs. Their weapon bundles are placed to one side. To the left of the prisoners is a litter with rays projecting from its backrest. This is the litter of the warrior priest who is seen in the register above. In other scenes, the warrior priest is actually riding in the litter... And human heads hang from the ends of the litter poles. Now, above and tied to the litter with a cord is a scepter. And I want to tell you about this scepter in a little bit. Uh, Shown in horizontal view with its box-like chamber on the left and its spatula-bladed handle on the right. Can you see the scepter there described? I want you to keep that in mind uh, because that's... Um, well, perhaps I can tell you this: in the there, there was a glass case. There was the scepter was found buried with this priest, and it's it comes up and is is square. It flares out and is is square at the top, and one edge is a is a razor sharp blade, and it is used to uh, sacrifice and sometimes decapitate. Uh, the victim, and there it is. You walk through the exhibit. Here I was with my little headset on, listening to the tape message, you know. And you stand before this thing, and it's like standing before the cross. It's like a, you know, the the old thing of I even wrote a poem about this one time. The, the old I- idea of having a, a a splinter of wood from the cross, you know that the, <laughs> some uh, some little token of the cross i felt like that standing in front of this thing how many people had this thing killed it represented it was just quite amazing